Welcome, Legionaries, to episode 15 of Legion Cast. Today we're going to be talking about Mechanicum. I am your host, Warwick, and joining me as always is my co-host, Brandon. And joining both of us is a very special guest, the host of God Engine Cast and the new podcast, Fires of Betrayal, Martin Emery. Martin, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, greetings, Princeps. Um, yes. Um, hi, my name's Martin. Uh, I'm a podcaster, wargamer from Oklahoma. Don't let the accent confuse you. Um, living in Oklahoma for the best part of 13 years and been around most of the game stores in the area. Originally from the UK. Play a lot of Heresy, a lot of Titanicus. Right on. Thank you so much for joining us. This is going to be great. This is a, a great story to talk about, and uh, we're happy to have you. Yep, very happy to have you, Martin. Um, hello, everyone. Uh, I am Brandon. You all already know me. I'm really excited to talk Titans and other Heresy-related things. Uh, but let's uh, let's jump into it. So, uh, Warwick, what's on your hobby table today? Oh, well, um, I had a bunch of stuff on the hobby table, and then I promptly got done with that, and now I'm working on a whole other round of stuff. So I have been tearing through my New Year's 3000 list that I talked about uh, a couple of episodes ago. Uh, last week, I knocked out a 10-man squad of Plasma Gunners and a Rhino, and this week, I've got my 10 heavy support guys with Volkite Culverins and my second Contemptor Dreadnought on the table. And I've already got a couple steps done on them. Uh, I also painted Remus Ventarnus last week and my Master of Signals. So I've been getting a lot done uh, for me anyway. I know a lot of people might scoff at that, but uh, I have been very busy by my own standards. So what about you, Brandon? Yeah, you've been an absolutely busy bee and you've really been showing me up. Um, I got, I just, uh, I just knocked out 20 tacticals. I'm so excited about that. But uh, tonight I am working on, I'm changing it up a bit uh, in honor of our guest who is joining us. I'm really excited about, I am working on a Warhound Titan. So I am doing Legio Astorum as my Loyalist Legio. This is kind of my tester model. Um, Some things have been working, some things have not. Um, But uh, I'm excited to get them done. I'm doing a Regia Manipole uh, for those not familiar with Titanicus. It's two warlords and three warhounds. But uh, yeah, it's been nice to kind of change it up from black and red going to, to blue and yellow has been, been refreshing. Uh, Martin, what about you? What's on your hobby table? Um, currently it's a Imperial Knight at a 32 millimeter scale. Um, it's been a while since I painted one of those, but reading today's book uh, the last couple of weeks has made me look to my unpainted knights and realize that my word bearers need to be joined by some Slightly smaller Titans than I'm used to. It's uh, really weird to go out painting a model as big as it. I've painted the best part of a 4,000-point Wordbearer's army in like six months. So this has been a pretty substantial change. But uh, it's pleasant and good. All right on, man. That's awesome. Yeah, I've seen the work-in-progress pictures you've posted. Uh, it's looking pretty good. Um, I, I'll be excited. Well, I won't be excited if I ever see it across the table, but... At least it'll look really good. <laughs> I mean, we'll see how it looks on the table. I'm, they aren't as good as they used to be, as they once were. So, Well, Martin, did you want to plug your new podcast for a little bit? Tell us uh, kind of what you're going to be covering. In Absolutely. That. So, yeah, um, some people will know my voice from a podcast known as The God Engine Cast, which was a podcast I ran for the better part of three years, or two years and a third sort of quasi-year, uh, which was focused on Titanicus. Um, I actually stopped recording... I closed down the podcast in January. I decided it was time to hang up that particular chapter. Um, Titanicus is not supported as well as 
it used to be, and talking about it at length was becoming harder. Um, so as of basically today, at the time of recording, uh, I've still launched a new podcast, uh, the Fires of Betrayal podcast, which is a podcast dedicated to discussing all things Boris Heresy, primarily focusing on the wargaming side of things. Uh, we threw out our first podcast um, the weekend of the 25th, and our, uh, it's a sort of introduction to the show, and we should have another one coming out in two weeks after that, which is going to be a discussion about the law behind Power Armor, and uh, whether we need to distinguish the rules for different styles of armor in-game, which is going to be an interesting debate. I'll be looking forward to that. That's, uh, that sounds like a very interesting conversation. Um, yeah, yeah, that sounds cool. We really just want to get lost in the weeds. A lot of people do overview stuff, and we're just going to pick a topic and just get lost in it once every two weeks. So, yeah. And there'll be a lot of Titanicus content coming. We've got one plan- show planned already on the Titanicuses. It's not done, it's just changed. Well, very cool. That that sounds like a lot of fun. Well, as far as Warhammer news goes, we have been spoiled with another tank, and uh, the Sakaran Venator has been previewed for us, which we've talked at length already on this podcast about uh, vehicle fatigue. So uh, what are your guys' thoughts on that? My take's pretty simple. Um I think there's a list of product codes Games Workshop have got that are currently resin models. Uh, They've given this list to an intern and said, we need these in plastic. And they're working through it. And eventually we'll get to the bottom of the list and they'll make new models. But until then, product codes being turned from resin into plastic. Henceforth will it be. That's that's great, but having the plastic despoilers and assault marines higher on the list would be awesome too. Oh yeah, but you know... (laughs) Yeah, I, you know, Martin, I'd love to get your opinion on this. You're up in Oklahoma, so a little bit of a different area than me. What what I've been seeing down here, you know, we have our kind of core, the, there's the core heresy community, but a lot of the guys who came in at the start of second edition, me being one of them, uh, I've seen a lot of fall off in that department because of this, this kind of just tank after tank after tank uh, to the point where, you know, sometimes I'm struggling to get games down here. So I, I'd love to hear, you know, is it, kind of look like that for, for you up there in Oklahoma, or is the is the hype staying pretty strong with all these tanks? I don't know. In fairness, I think most of the hype sort of died away when people didn't finish putting together the initial box set. There were a lot of people coming into it strong. A lot of people brought the box set, but a lot of people are still working their armies. Um, I don't think the release schedule... I think the only thing... The only big thing we haven't seen is obviously the demon rules. And as I talked about on my podcast the other day, my pet theory is is that they just didn't want to put another free PDF out after the reaction the community had to the last one, which, you know, I don't think we could have coped with another sort of poor quality PDF. So I don't know. It's a weird place. That's fair. My cynical mind says they don't want to put anything out for free ever, but uh, that's because I'm a bit jaded. Um, now, I... I don't know. I, I think you're right. I think that a lot of the initial hype did fall off, um, but it, it has been a struggle to, you know, get people to, hey, you know, you got that box set. Let's let's get it put together so we can get some games in. And you know, folks are just like, well, you know, I wanted to play Blood Angels, but I need chain swords. Okay, well, I, I got nothing for you unless you got a 3D printer. Um, but even then, you know, that's a pain. It, it, you know, that's. You talked about it a bit on your podcast of your, your, what you're, cha- you're trading price for time 
I think that's a pretty fair assessment. Now, granted, that's time that printer's just buzzing in the background for the most part, but it, it is a fair trade-off, I think, to uh, to assess. So we'll see. I, I think the tank looks cool. Um, I don't. I doubt I'm going to pick one up um, just because it doesn't really have a place in my army. Um, are either of you planning to pick up the Venator? I haven't decided yet. I'm really happy with my Ultramarines. I have not decided on my Traitor Legion yet. Um, actually, funny story, Martin. I was leaning towards Thousand Suns, but your podcast almost killed it for me because Magnus is by far the worst part of that army. So, no shade to you guys, but thanks. Uh, Magnus should have died. Um, that's all I'm saying. Um... I just love the Magnus did nothing right. Uh, Magnus did nothing wrong crowd because the counterpoint to that is Magnus did nothing right. Total screw up. Um, I will be getting the tank. Also, just looping back to the spoilers, just something I haven't really brought up. I'm not hugely worried that they haven't put plastic spoilers out. I've got 30 of them now. I made them out of the, the, the box Marines. Chainswords are easy to find on Bits websites, and they're e actually fairly easy to find in other boxes these days. Um, a little bit of kit bashing goes a long way. I can't kit bash your Venator. That's yeah, that's definitely a fair fair assessment. I think it boils down to how much work. I mean, as Brandon said, it was a lot of the the new guys getting into the hobby, not knowing that they would need these models, and that's where we're seeing the drop off. But these new guys maybe aren't is and i don't want to speak for for anyone in particular but maybe these guys aren't as willing to put the work into it as say you or i would uh being an ultramarines player i don't really have to worry about that because i'm i'm so kind of standard troop based um i'm not really looking for the spoilers or uh breachers or anything they would be nice i just they're not really in my wheelhouse right now breaches are definitely a missing thing i want to breaches there's no no good way to do breaches yeah that's fair um should we get to the, the hot gossip of the day? Um, let's talk about Warhammer artists. Um, I happened to notice um, as I was falling down a YouTube hole one evening that uh, some folks had uh, had done some reporting, uh, one of them being uh, Goobertown Hobbies, a channel that I don't personally follow, but uh, I, I had seen, they had said something about this, that uh, the, uh, the Warhammer YouTube page, we all know it. We all love it. We've all taken a tutorial or two from Duncan. Um, but apparently, back last month, they decided to stop showing the artist's face and not you know, showing their name. And after doing a little bit of digging, apparently this is also the same behind their Warhammer Plus paywall for their Citadel Master Classes. Um, that artist, uh, her name is Luis something i'm forgetting her last name very talented artist um but they have stopped showing that um and there's there's some debate around why this would be um i think that one of the popular ideas is that uh, they don't want another duncan or another peachy on their hands and the kind of counterpoint is well games workshop is really just trying to avoid their personalities getting harassed which is fair I, I do think that's kind of the go-to when a company is doing something shady. They're like, well, we're just trying to avoid harassment and try and turn it back around on outside of their company. Right. That's usually kind of the PR move is to maybe 
I don't want to say cast blame, but but maybe leave some plausible deniability that like, look, maybe there were some some uh, unsavory people harassing the artists on social media. Uh, I I have not seen that. I I don't know. I'm on Twitter quite a bit these days, but maybe I'm just not catching it. I don't know. Mark, Martin, you got anything to add to that? Um. Well, I did some digging this afternoon after Brandon mentioned this. I actually went to the um, Warhammer Plus site to actually look at the most recent Masterclass. I've noticed they're actually doing more than one painter on there now. They've opened it up to the a large portion of the team. Um, and from what I know from some of the people who popped up, some of them aren't the usual regular painters. So I think one of the questions is whether they've just opened this up to other people who are actually in the studio. And by opening it up to the studio, perhaps those people want their anonymity. Uh, appearing on TV is a scary thing for quite a few folk. Um, and not having their face on and not having the name out there, you know, you don't want to have a part of people chasing you down, especially if, you know, you join Games Workshop to be a painter, and that's what they're paying you for. Yeah, that's that's certainly a fair point. I can see people wanting personal and, and, and anonymity or whatever. Yeah, if, if, it's, if it comes to that, though, I do got to wonder, you know, did the artist ask for it? Um, because again, that, uh, that artist who's doing the Citadel masterclass, she had a tweet that was a bit cryptic in the sense of, well, I can't say anything bad about this, but I'm also a le- seemingly unhappy with it. Um, so, uh, you know, I do wonder, well, I think that may be more of the fact that she's not doing it anymore. Oh, is she not? No, I, as you probably were, the, they've opened up, there's more than, there's a, there's a much larger array of people doing it on the Warhammer Plus now. Um, and it's also of note that. It's only the artists that have taken the names away. If you go to the, the briefing at the start of every week, the what's new in the hobby, that's still opening with the person's name. All of the uh, battle reports they're doing still have everyone, everyone's names and faces in it. But they also don't have any other painters in them anymore. All the recent ones have been a much more reduced cast. It really feels like they've sort of tried to insulate the painting studio. That's a wider selection of it. But I don't know. It's There's something changed in policy, and it's very... Without a public announcement, it's going to be very hard to say why. Yeah, and and GW is not exactly famous for their public announcements. Obviously, they've been better in the past several years, but you know, I, I don't think we need to harken back to the dark times when there was just nothing but silence from Games Workshop. You know, five ten years ago. Um, but no, it's interesting. It's something I you know I just happened to notice, and uh, you know, we'll see if anything comes from it. I, I personally, I do think that they're really trying to avoid another Duncan because, I mean, Duncan basically built their brand as in, on the painting and YouTube front. So I, I don't think they, I think they want to avoid that happening to them again. Yeah, I can, I can kind of see it, but I, I think I'm with kind of with Martin on this. There's, there's so much uncertainty. It's, it's hard to lean one way or another. I'd definitely be more for it if they tightened up the rest of the ship. But the fact they're still having their spokesman's names out there, and given the fact the person I think they're trying to avoid is the Honest Wargamer Rob. I mean, that's the big black sheep of the family. He's the one who left and was very antagonistic towards them and has built his like brand off being not Warcom um, and speaking very and speaks regularly critically about them. A lot of the people who were like could become him, they still haven't taken their names away. That's well, and let's let's also be sure we're we're clear here. This is not the first time they've taken people's names off of things. You know, the rules team used to be credited by name, and now they're just the Warhammer rules team. But 
Yeah, I mean, it could go either way. Um, it's just interesting. It's a good debate to to talk about. But uh, unless anybody's got anything to add, I think we can we can go ahead and move on, and we can we can talk Titans. I'm here to talk Titans. Big stompy robots. Yeah. Let's get to it. All right, so we'll take a short break here, and then let's uh, jump into Mechanicum. Welcome back, everybody. Uh, hope you had a good break. I know we sure did. Uh, so, but let's uh, let's get into the real topic of today's episode, which is Mechanicum by Graham McNeil. Now, I don't know how you guys feel. Overall, I actually enjoy this book. Um, I know for but I'm in the minority here in that I like Graham McNeil. <laughs> so I'm aware that I am talking to a hostile crowd on this panel, but. I, I think that this one's done pretty well. Specifically, I just, I love the Titan fight scenes, the knights. Um, I think this book has some great action, uh, but I'm excited to get to talk about it with you guys. But uh, let's, should we start with first impressions here? Yeah, um, I, overall, I think this is a great book. It has a couple of slow moments and the parts that I don't care for do not kill it enough for me to, to take me out of the book at all. I think overall, it's a great story. And, Martin, in your your podcast that I listened to this morning, you mentioned that as time goes on, you like Graham McNeil less and less, and you're not sure why. I have some insight for you, my friend. It is because he is 15 degrees off of Dan Abnett. Dan, you don't think so? Okay, I've been giving this some thoughts. So, I used to love Graham McNeil. Like... I built a 12,000-point Iron Warriors army because I read Storm of Iron. I thought he was the greatest author Black Library had, full stop. And when I first read Mechanicum, that's what I went in. Like, this is my favorite author. This is going to be a great book. It's about Titans. Yes. And I enjoyed it the first time through. And then I reread it for my podcast two years ago. And it just wasn't as good. And I've read more of his stuff. And I've been like, huh. Huh. This is... Not what I remembered. And then I reread it again for this podcast. I'm like, yeah, Graham McNeil is kind of terrible. And it's not that he's like, he writes really good pulp. It is pulp sci-fi. It is the type of sci-fi you would love to see in a Judge Dredd comic, which is 40k. The problem is he also misses stuff. That's something I wanted to bring up is that he is not as consistent as other authors. So like, that's why I wanted to bring my brother Maniple on for Nemesis because he's pretty familiar with all the assassins and stuff. So Maniple is going to be talking about, uh, I think Graham McNeil wrote that one too, didn't he? Um, But uh, anyway, he is so inconsistent with his writing in that book as far as like all the characterizations of these different the different functionalities in Warhammer, it bugs me to no end because he's so inconsistent the whole time. Nemesis is written by James Swallow, Swalwell. Admonish yourself. I stand admonished. I had it in my head. It was Graham McNeil, but he's got, um, he, he did uh, Vengeful Spirit, which is not a good book either. So we'll, uh, we'll talk about that later. I think you're probably thinking of Outcast Dead. 
for the Graham McNeil book. It, it is outcast dead because when an unarmored world eater kills a fully armored custodes, I have a problem with that. Let alone the timing of Magnus's attack on the Imperial Palace coming several years into the heresy. Um, right, right. Makes total sense. Okay. So I'm wondering then if maybe what it is, because I'm an Iron Warriors guy, and I love Storm of Iron as well, um, and I also love Angel Exterminatus, which is basically just the prequel to Storm of Iron. So I wonder if that's why I enjoy Graham McNeil. Maybe I will undergo a change as we go through these books. He writes Sunday cartoons, which is fine, but you got Abnett writing Shakespeare. Yeah, um, Abnett... I was Abnett did the Unremembered Empire, which I am not a fan of that book at all. We'll we'll revisit that down the line. But anyway, let's get into Mechanicum. We can rag on Graham McNeil all day long, you and I. But uh, I think the opener to this is pretty strong. Uh, I'm not going to do the play by play because that's dumb. Anyway, I think it the 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 setting the scene where the Knights of Terranus are walking up Olympus Mons because it started raining on Mars, and this is the the prophecy. Sorry, I could not think of the word. This is the prophecy by some long-forgotten tech priest that foresaw the coming of the Omnissiah, which is the, the machine god that would bind Earth and Mars or whatever and, and carry the Mechanicum into the future. And so the Knights of Terranus are walking up Olympus Mons, and at the top, they meet the emperor who's calling himself the Omnissiah. And it's this monumentous occasion because it, it marks the union of Earth and Mars. And something that we don't really haven't talked about yet is that the Imperium is actually a binary belief or, or a binary political system, more or less, because it's the Emperor on Terra and the priesthood of Mars. Without one or the other, humanity could not have reconquered the galaxy. What did you guys think? Yeah, so that's actually something I want to talk about with you guys on this uh, on this episode because you know we're we're introduced to this idea and we've been introduced to it in books past that uh, the 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 Imperium is a union of Mars and Terra, but I actually don't think you know, and we see throughout the book, uh, particularly with uh, Kilbor Howl, it's supposed to be a union, but it's really the Emperor with Mars playing second fiddle. And I don't think that he's wrong there. You know, based on what we see and how things are between the, the two parties, it really is the Emperor in charge and he's just bringing Mars along for the ride. Yeah, that's sort of the the union where they're the second part of the Imperium really doesn't actually occur until the Adeptus Mechanicus is formed, which is uh, in the Burden of Loyalty book. There's a short story that talks about it a lot of the characters from this book return and that's where that real transformation happens and until that point they are second fiddle and yeah well i would actually i would argue that they're more second fiddle when they become the adeptus mechanicus because now they are just a administration of terra at that point at this point what they're supposed to be it's supposed to be equal partners or at least that's the impression we're given but it's clearly not so I will say the counterpoint to all that is, and Kelbor Hal mentions the other Forge Worlds lost about the galaxy, the counterpoint to all this is the Mechanicum could not have been reclaiming those Forge Worlds without the Imperium backing them up, without the, um, because all, most of the Astropaths come out of Terra. So 
the Mechanicum wouldn't have been able to explore the galaxy without the psychic resources coming off of Earth. And the, the, you know, just the sheer might of the Astartes to go out there and explore the universe again. The Mechanicum is strong on its own, but I don't think they would have had that same capacity to go out and find all their lost Forge worlds without the support of Terra to do so. I mean, that's, that's my counterpoint. That's how I see it. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, I just think when you, when you look at the, uh, the the other side of that coin is, though, that the Imperium couldn't go out and get those worlds in the first place without Mars either. So they really, they both, they can't have an interstellar empire, neither of them, alone. Um, I, I Would anybody push back on me there? I know you're right. It it, it is uh, equal effort, equal reward. And again, another counterpoint is Mars wasn't recovering STCs without the Imperium. Again, it was just it was just stagnation in the age of uh, age of darkness. So, you know, without one another, none of this could have happened. And I mean, we can say that the Mechanicum is playing second fiddle all day long, but one without the other, nothing nothing really changes. I mean, that's the great lie. I mean, that's the twist not to we'll get there the eventually but it wraps itself up that the reason the dynamic exists is explained within the book which is a big plus for the actual book it does tie that up in a bow well and that 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 ending that you're talking about is also what makes me enjoy this opening even more because the emperor presents himself as the omnisiah and what we see at by the end um Spoilers, if you haven't read Mechanicum, you shouldn't be listening to this. Admonish yourself. The Emperor kind of is the Omnissiah. Right, because he he sets the stage for all that to take place so that he can show up, what, 10,000 years later and say, hey guys, it's me, I'm the Omnissiah. Yeah, the best way to declare a prophecy is to make sure it happens. Well, you're, when you're immortal and can see the future, it's pretty easy to prophesize. And stack the deck in your favor. But yeah, I, I thought it was a pretty good opening. It's, I, I, I do love the machine heal thyself, and it just does. Like, that's that's pretty cool. And getting to see the knights, I think this is the first time, Warwick, correct me if I'm wrong here, this is the first time in the in the series that we're getting knights. It's not the first time we're getting titans, obviously, but I think it's first knights. You're right there. We have not seen imperial, point, or imperial knights in the books up until this point. And another thing I think this book does well is it does build the world of what Mars looks like, very well there's a scene later in the book where it's talking about once the the civil the martian civil war kicks off in earnest you know there's a basilica in the north that's preaching for peace and a ship falls out of orbit and destroys it and but i i enjoy i I had a very good picture of what mars is supposed to look like under the mechanicum from this book and the the descent into civil war yeah it's a really good descriptive book Uh, one thing i will bring up while we're talking about the Knights at the start. Um, the first couple of times I went through this book, I always felt a little awkward reading the descriptions of the Knights because they didn't match my descriptions of Knights until I had a realization that the actual Knights he's describing is the 1985 Epic Knights. The Eboxia, they aren't built like the current plastic kits. Uh, this because the book was 2008. This predates all of the current artwork of Knights. It's a very different idea. And that even goes down to the weapon choices later that are just, yeah, that stuff. But yeah, no. And so that jumps out at me as an anomaly, but is also cool, but weird. Yeah, I thought that was a really a really keen observation. 
uh, you mentioned that in our, our discord chat earlier, uh, that, yeah, I had not thought of it that way. I just thought that, well, uh, Raph Maven's talking about his knight having a four meter long energized blade. And I was like, so is it a Serastus knight? Like, what is he armed with? He's also got like a big cannon. That doesn't sound right. So that the armaments don't stack up with what I know. And I'm not as familiar with the, the epic scale stuff as you are. So that was a really good observation. Thank you for that. Yeah, there's a bit where he's like leaning through to look through an opening window at the front. And well, that's just not a thing that's there anymore. So when when uh, when a machine is being rebuilt, he's talking about the armor glass canopy being lowered down. And I was like, that's dumb. That's not how they're built. Um, so since we're not going to do a play by play this time, we're going to try and change up the format a bit here. Um, and I, you know, I'd like to. I'd like to just run through kind of each plot line um, and we can kind of do our thoughts on that and then we'll jump to the next one. Why don't we take the best for first and talk about Titans? Um, so we get to see two Titan legions, two Titan legios kind of close up here, uh, Tempestus and Mortis. So what are you guys' thoughts on these guys? I think they're set up pretty well. We start off at this uh, this Council of Tharsis, I think it was, where uh, there's been an attack on a on a big reactor that supplies energy to a lot of uh, a lot of surrounding like nightly houses and other legios. And this is called into question because the some of the knights that were there said they saw mortis colors during the attack attacking this reactor. So this council is called to action to kind of try and hold Mortis accountable for the whole thing. And, you know, Mortis gets there and they're, they're almost belligerent, right? So they're, they're kind of like, look, you can't question us. We've got, you know, seniority on everybody. Screw you guys. Don't tell us what to do. And uh, Tempestus is there to kind of push back on it. It was like, well, you know, you need to be held accountable if, if, uh, if this data is, is correct or whatever. And what did you guys kind of get that too? Um, one of the one of the things I really enjoyed in that scene um, was with the with the Mortis princeps. Um, later, the the Tempestus folks are, are discussing it, and uh, one thing that I believe it's Princeps Cavalario says is that uh, the 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 princeps of Mortis was so belligerent because he obviously know he didn't do it because he obviously knows that there's no oh, evidence, which is why he walked in there like an ass. Now, I kind of think that that's just Mortis in general, but that was an interesting observation. It was interesting to see these uh, kind of the politicking between the Legios and how uh, how that kind of works and how they're supposed to be above the squabbles of the Mechanicum, as well as we're seeing the groundwork laid here of, you know, people are, uh, you know, factions are starting to side with Horus. They're saying that they're more loyal to him than the emperor. And they're outright saying it here, which I thought this was a little bit early for them to come out and say that, but also they're the largest Titan Legion on Mars. So who's going to tell them, tell them off really. So, you know, I, I can kind of go either way on that one. Okay. So I have some thoughts. First of all, I think the word bearers need to be sending Legion Mortis a cease and desist. Uh, they have stolen all of the top hats and large moustaches. Uh, there is too much twirling and moustaches being done. Um, Erebus is the only one allowed to do that. Uh, thank you very much. Um, but what I noticed, the big thing reviewing it after getting deep into Titanicus lore like I've been for the last three years, is that there is an absence of Titan, uh, Titan Legions. Um... We don't have Legio Incarna mentioned. 
uh, based even in the early 1980s law, there should be all three of the triat there, Tempestus, um, Mortis, and Ignatum. Ignatum are the defenders of Mars, and they just aren't in the book. Uh, they're mentioned very briefly that they have a war and they get off planet, which makes sense, and they show up later in Mortis, um, but they're missing. Other than that, Tempestus is really good. They definitely read like a really solid Titan Legion. Uh, they are our point of view Titan Legion. It's really good to see a Titan Legion behaving like a Titan Legion. Um, that's partly because what we think of Titan Legions was set by this book, this and Titanicus, the Dan Amnet book, that this is a prequel to in many ways. Um, and I think they're really strong for it. Um, I really like the Princeps. He's a well, Princeps Senioris. He's a very rounded character, and there's some really good interactions between him and the rest of the crew. I, I really like uh, Indius Cavalario, the, the princeps that you mentioned. I really like his pushback to Mortis when they say that they're more loyal to the War Master than the Emperor. And Cavalario basically, basically says it's a matter of philosophy at that point. Then, even if you do. Uh, even if you do follow the War Master, you need to recognize that his authority comes from the Emperor. And, you know, that I feel like that kind of de-escalates the room at that point, and Mortis backs off at that point, and Tempestus doesn't have enough to go after them. So I felt like it was a really solid character interaction, like you're saying. It, you know, he's super grounded, he's, he's doing what he can, but uh, he just... You know, he, his, his, he's kind of got the whole golden handcuffs almost because as much as he would like to take someone to task for this, it's not really in the cards right now. Yeah, it's it's a it's just pretty solid. And I like the other princeps they mention within the Tempestus Legion. They they have the personalities. We definitely have the progress as one moves from the Warlord, uh, for the, as one moves from your Warhounds to the Reavers and up. You get the definite change in personality. And they have a good intake of what the manifold's like as well. And it's solid. Yeah, there's nothing bad to say about, especially the whole opening of it, really. We we also get a, a little bit of the, some more of the Knights of Terranus in that scene. The Lord Commander uh, Verdi Quarter, who was at the meeting of the Omnissiah on uh, Olympus Mons, he is there kind of mediating the whole thing because it's mentioned that these knightly houses are actually sometimes even senior princeps of the Titan Legios will consult Lord Commanders of the Knightly Houses because they've they've got even longer honor rules than a lot of Titans do because the, the Knightly Houses are actually older than some of the Titans. Yeah, that's um that's something that I really liked uh, out of this was kind of the enmeshment that we saw between House Terranus and a bit of Legio Tempestus as well. It's something that way, way down the line from now, I'm kind of disappointed in when we get to Titan death. I really thought there was opportunity for the enmeshment of House Procon Vi and Legio Solaria that just didn't happen in that book as much. So I really enjoyed seeing it here. It helped show that the, the knights are a force to be reckoned with, even though one of them could be stomped by a warhound in 10 seconds flat. Unless you're playing Titanicus. Knights rule in Titanicus. Uh, Warwick can speak from experience in me having Serastus Knights outflank his Reavers. Still better. Yeah, um, no comment about Knights in Titanicus. Um, I I did enjoy the Knights' appearance at that stage. Obviously, I mean, I'm going to bring this up continually. It's an early book for a lot of the material we're de dealing with. Knights and Titans haven't been touched from 
the mid nineties to this book. So we're treading new ground. So I don't want to be too critical of the fact it doesn't match current law. And it's really nice to see that it's the groundwork that so much of what we now appreciate for the law is based on. And that, that one scene of the big council holds up immaculately. And it could be a, I could take that section out, put it on a, on a shelf of great scenes in the heresy and I have no worries about it. Yeah. And I definitely want to dig into, since you're definitely the Titan expert on this panel, um, I want to dig into kind of the differences between when this book was written and now, obviously we know in the grim darkness of the far future, there is only retcons. So this is not the first or last time something will change over the course of this book series. But uh, yeah, why don't we dive into that now, Martin, if you want to talk about, you know, things that are kind of different from where we are now in the lore versus when this book was written, kind of the differences in the Knights and Titans. I, I mean, okay, so the big one is that Knights look completely different. Knights are not, yeah, they're just, they're just different. You really need to go and look at the images of them. Um, and as far as the Titans themselves, which is something we'll come up later, is the Titan scales really haven't been tied down. 2008, we still haven't seen any of the real models built by Forgeworld. We're still looking at the armor cast models are still being produced. So we're looking at uh, Epic models. Now, the big thing about Epic models is that Epic was built at a 1 in 75 scale, so 175 to 1. So, And then the Titans were at 1 in 200, so even smaller. Which led people to have a weird idea that Titans were a lot shorter than they should have been. When we get to Titanicus, they bring them all to the right scale. They rescale everything to one two hundred. I've lost you all. I know, um, but it doesn't matter. Always by now, we've got a much different idea of how everything scales up together. Ford will put out some wonderful drawings, technical drawings where everything matches, and that's really apparent in this book that the scales of the Titans change a lot. The weapon armaments of the Titans are not close to the weapon armaments we see these days. Even the position of crew within the the head, the the cockpit, does, is is inconsistent. Um, nothing outrageous, but little things that if you've been reading a lot of recent material, you'll notice. Um, I brought it up in show notes. There is another Black Library book. It's an orc book. It's called, oh God, what's the name? Brutal Cunning. Brutal Cunning, that's the one. Uh, Brutal Cunning was written, well, published in 2000. And it is this book written for the modern era. It's not, but it is. Every other chapter goes to the mechanic or mechanic, cult Mechanicus perspective. And there are several chapters from the point of view of Titanicus crew. And if you want a, what it looks like in our current Titans, that talks it through. And it's almost, so many of the scenes feel like they've been just reinterpreted. And when we get to conclusions, I'll bring that book up again, because there's some key things I want to take away. But I think as far as Titans go, there's just been a lot of subtle changes. Yeah. Yeah, I, I actually, one of the things I noticed that I kind of picked out as far as changes was when Princeps Cavalario is firing the volcano cannon on his warlord Titan, he will say, uh, let's get a concentrated three-round burst. And now we know that a volcano cannon will straight up drain the reactor on the Titan. There's no three-round bursting that thing. Um, but to touch on the scale um, that you were talking about, this is a problem across, this This is a consistent problem where when they, when they write about Titans. I think in Titan death, again, the Legio Volpa warlord is referenced as being 400 meters tall. I have the Titanicus rulebook in here, which has the nice, you guys are familiar with this, the technical readout on a warlord titan here right in the front. Resting height, 32 meters. Not quite 400. 
It's not quite taller than the tallest skyscraper. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it gets worse, especially when we bring the Imperators into it a bit later. Um, that's really where the problems come up, because the Imperator Titan was the largest model Games Workshop ever, ever created until we got the Imperial Knight kit, biggest plastic kit. But it was done in an even smaller scale, so it was like, compared to the other Titans, it was still big, but it was done so it was smaller, which inconsistent scales within a single game would never be done now by Games Workshop, and definitely was has led to problems. Wasn't there a a kind of quasi lore reason behind the inconsistent writing? Is that it was actually imperial propaganda exaggerating the, the size of titans to like impress citizens and scare enemies? Oh, I'm sure there's something like that. And I honestly, I, it doesn't really matter in the grand scheme of things, but it is funny to look at. Well, that's something I wanted to uh, something I wanted to touch on in the canon discussion we had on a previous roundtable was like realistically like canon's important because readers want consistency so to get this inconsistency in titan sizes is important to us in so much that you know we're not really getting the the solid story in a way that we thought we would yeah i mean they the inconsistent narrator the unreliable narrator ideas uh front and center in all the black library books i think the only way the games which would call it out more is if they had a in in-game author's note in front of every book. I think that would be a CYA they could do. But well, and we have that series. It's called the Caiaphas Kane series. Uh, <laughs> but uh, let's let's keep moving on with the Tempestus storyline here. I personally, I think that the best action all comes out of this plot line because it's Titan fighting. Uh, we get the 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 next big scene with them. Really is um, is the standoff at the Tempest line, which is interesting to me in, in one way. I, I actually think it would have been a better scene if the Imperator Titan had turned off before uh, crossing the Tempest line. Because it kind of... I understand that it's an Imperator and they really didn't have a shot at, at beating it, but it does also make Tempestus look very weak in that it actually crossed the Tempest line it violated the treaty, and they did absolutely nothing, and it's not really brought up again. So, I have to start talking about my conclusions, sadly. Um, this scene actually brings up one of my biggest concerns with the book. The book tries to do too much. If the book had just been a story about Legio Tempestus, we could have had a scene of a warlord and two reavers that turned around and walked away from the light. And they could have had Cavaldora and the rest of the princeps talking about, oh, that was close. I'm glad they didn't do that. Mortis is going to cross this line one day, yada, yada, yada. And then we could have a couple more chapters, and then the Imperator crosses it. We could have built up that dramatic tension. But instead, it just they show up and they cross, because that's what space in the book we have. Yeah, it's definitely frustrating because it, you know, at that point, like, why are we supposed to believe in Tempestus? And I think there there's a little bit of a, a cushion here in that Cavalario couldn't give the order because he was trying to get there in time, and in doing so, he overloaded his reactor and effectively killed himself. I, the, and the, there's Brandon, maybe you can talk about kind of the whole uh, like a collapse of chain of command, where when when your leader isn't communicating properly, does the next guy in line know what to do? Yeah, and I mean. If we want to talk from a pure chain of command 
perspective, the the answer is that you are supposed to fire in that situation. The, the treaty has been violated. This is North Korea cl- crossing the fifty the fifty second parallel. You know, this is this is straight up. You just declared war. That being said, when it comes to are we actually going to set off nuclear Armageddon on Mars, it it makes it a little more difficult to pull that trigger, especially when they haven't fired. Um, but it is belligerently. You know, I, I agree. I think that it would have been nice if we had had maybe, you know, a step up to the line and then later the crossing of the line. But I, I mean, you're right that we would have needed just a dedicated Tempestus book for that. Um, I, I do agree. I think the book does a little too much. There's too many plot lines. It's it's quite a scene. The other thing that I kind of chuckle about is that it seems like in this to me, it always just feels like Mortis is just carrying around an Imperator Titan in their back pocket everywhere they go because they have, they seem to have the most of them and correct me if I'm wrong there, but that, you know, there's one here, obviously there's the Deus Irae, you know, a lot of these other Titan Legios, they don't even have one and Mortis has multiple. No, I, I, I can answer that. So there is a reason Mortis have so many. Mortis, Tempestus and Ignatum were the three founding Titan Legions. Mars built three Titan Legions on Mars. All of the Titan Legions were created after that using Titans from those three. Now, there's lots of interpretations whether they've actually direct splits or whether they were just how we got there. So those three should have the majority of the greatest engines. The real question is, why doesn't Tempestus have one in this story so and and i know there's some inconsistent writing where tempestus is concerned because uh in this book it uh cavalario says that they were off crusading with the ultramarines and he was very proud to be serving with so augusta legion and then uh, i think it's written in the lore later on that they all sided with the war master because they were plugged into or they were part of his expeditionary fleet but they're not mentioned in uh, the first three books, at least, uh, during his turn. So, like, when when does that all come up? When does that play out? Well, it, he says that he has served with Gilliman and the War Master, and I don't know that he says that his Legio is with the War Master now. Um, he says that the rest of the Legio is still in the Crusade, and they had to come back to Mars for refit. That's why they're there, and that's why they're so diminished in strength. So to Martin, to, to your point, I, I wonder if maybe they do have a couple, one, two, three Imperators, but they're still deployed to the front. Let me answer to the loyalties of Legio Tempestus. Legio Tempestus and Titanicus is found in the Traitor Book. They are a Traitor Legion. The only Loyalist Tempestus Titans were on Mars under the power of the Stormlord. The Stormlord got wounded along with his Titan and got sent to Mars, which we see here. The rest of his legion moved from Gulliman to work with the Wordbearers and Horus, and they were switched. So after the death of these guys on the city, uh, Legion Tempestus become traitor, and they get shafted by Mortis, because Mortis remembered what happens here, and they don't show up during the heresy because Mortis pushed them aside. Um, they then sort of slightly backstab Mortis and become Legion Tempestor, and become kind of Black Shield-ish and end up in the Eye of Terror anyway. 
Yeah, I definitely remember being surprised because this is at the up to that point, this was the only book with Tempestus in that that I had read. So when I saw them in the Trader Legio's book, I was like, "What? What's going on here? I where's my boys defending the Magma City at?" Well, they're dead, but <laughs> they do show. So the there is another book, uh, Dan Abnett's Titanicus, which is forty k book. That actually focuses on Legion of Tempestus as well, which is a loyalist legion. But they are founded after the heresy to reclaim the name lost because of the Magma City incident. That, uh, that makes sense then. I Like I said, I think we anybody have anything to add to the, uh, the Tempest well, line? Well, it's, it's, I know I already mentioned it, but it's important to say that uh, during this standoff, Cavalario pushes his engine Victorix Magnus so hard that it effectively destroys the engine and mortally wounds him, and he's barely brought back from the brink of death because of it. But he he does survive in the end. But he's kind of he's put into this um, amniotic tank basically, so he's he's interfacing directly with the machine now, and the the command structure goes through this kind of limbo where. Uh, he's not ready to, to retake command for a very long time, basically, because he's he's got to adjust to this new way of life. So I thought that was really interesting to touch on. Yeah, and, and because of that, we don't really see, like, the death of innocence happens um, with the scrap code infecting all the systems. And we don't really see Legio Tempestus again, really until the defense of the Magma City, which, hands up, this is one of my favorite fights in this book series before we get to that great site there is some actually incredible simulator fights which they 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 plug him in while he's in his back to tank or it's not a back to tank but that's what it is um they plug it in and he has some incredible scenes and they in fact the scenes while he's injured and becoming aware of himself with his aide who's doing everything because he's now stuck inside this tank are some really fantastic plot points and I really wish we had like more of that. And then the the other person who had to, because of his incapacitation, had to take over running the lead show. There was just nothing from it. This again is like, where is the rest of the story? If we had more Titans doing stuff while the Stormlord was busy in the simulator, I don't know. That's and that's one of my big gripes about that. You're right. Uh, I think Princeps Cavalario is one of the best characters in this book. I wish they would have spent more time with him, but the, the princeps that takes over while he is in the tank and getting plugged into the simulator every day, he never makes a a single decision other than he's not going to be in charge right now. And then the second that a big decision comes up, he goes right back to it. Yeah. That's a princeps. Suzak is his second in command. And he's just, he's not willing to do any decisive action. And it's, again, it goes back to the Tempest line thing that, they weren't willing to do anything when the, the treaty was violated. And the second in command is just completely inept when it comes to, when it comes to, you know, uh, advancing the, the agenda of any of these factions on Mars, because he says that they've received like 17 uh, calls for aid uh, from different factions across Mars. So, I mean, you, you need to do something. Let me just quickly pitch you another story. Like, I said there would be a great scene with the second attack on the Tempestus line. During this period here, what if it had him in Suzerak who took over? What if we had another princeps who perhaps was loyal to the Warmaster? 
and had turned uh, Tempestus to the Warmaster. And then the Stormlord's aide found out about that and him and some other people disabled this guy and then Tempestus could do a heel turn and suddenly be back on the side of the, the Emperor. There's a really good story that could have been done there in a few extra chapters. And then suddenly there would be a bit more drama in the whole fact that the Tempest, the Stormlord, was stuck in the simulator world. Yeah, I mean, that would have been really cool. Uh, I think the, the problem that this book has with the Tempestus kind of through line is they're really only broke. It's break when in need of action. That's how they treat Tempestus. Even though, again, I think one of the best characters is right here. No, that, that would have been... I mean, we see it done well later in Titan Death. You know, a lot of the a lot of the potential energy that is here is then taken and actually turned into kinetic there. Um, that book has its own problems, um, but and we'll get there in like five years when we actually get to that book. <laughs> but it's number fifty-two out of fifty-three people. Like, yeah, I know that's that'd be an awesome plot line here so, just something to happen what i don't understand why it's written that this that this other princeps needs to take over if at no point in the book he's ever going to do it yeah uh it's he's just a very much wait and see kind of guy in in warfare if that's your attitude by then it's too late so uh he basically just wants to make sure that india's cavalario can can come back to save the day at some point yeah that's that's kind of his whole role in the book Let's move on to the conclusion of the Tempestus arc because it is cataclysmic. It is it is awesome. It is Kool-Aid man breaking through the wall awesome. And we will see that very scene here shortly when we've been introduced to this setting of the Magma City earlier on in the book in one of the, the other arcs that we'll talk about in a minute. And the Magma City is run by this tech priest, Coriel Zeth, and she has petitioned Legio, Legio Tempestus to come and save her from Legio Mortis because Legio Mortis and their allies want the Magma City for their own ends. Unbeknownst to Mortis, Legio Tempestus has answered this call. So there's this awesome scene of Mortis just running rampant through the city and just, you know, blowing shit up left and right. They're decimating buildings. They're sacking the whole place. When um, this uh, this big artillery piece comes out of the wall and just melts a Reaver Titan in one shot. And it was a uh, an, ordinat an Ordinatus, which is a, a very esoteric piece of technology. And we, we very rarely see them. But it's a pretty cool scene. And then to immediately follow that up, a Mortis Warhound gets blasted into smithereens and as its ally tries to flush out the target that killed its ally uh deus tempestus the first god machine of legio tempestus kool-aid man's kool-aid man's through this wall and stomps this enemy warhound into oblivion and india's cavalario is back in the fight yeah I, this is possibly one of my favorite scenes in all the books is just him bursting through this building destroying that warhound and shouting engine kill while his titan's war horns are blaring i i mean i don't that that's warhammer baby like it just doesn't get cooler than that i think there is a few scenes in black library that have influenced my life but the statement of engine kill in the dramatic way he does it i go to cons and i come back voice horse i play an orc sim 40k i yell wah i'm the loudest war in the room but i'm also the loudest engine kill in the shop and yes the yelling engine kill is an intrinsic part of Titanicus, and it comes from that 
single moment. Oh, man. Uh, Warwick is probably so sick of, and he's going to get more of it when he comes down here to visit me in a couple of weeks. Every single time. That's next week, every dude. Single, shut up. Every single time. Every single time that what, an engine dies in Titanicus when I'm playing, somebody yells engine kill, and then I pull out my phone and blare the Imperator Warhorn from Hell's Reach. It's so cool. Like, I'm not going to lie. It's really awesome. You're really into it. It's so cool. But after getting my dick kicked in for a couple of days, I was over yeah, Warwick, Warwick doesn't like I was it done. because he's usually the one on the receiving end of the Warhorn and not the one handing out the Warhorn very often. Yeah, Engine Kill, it's one of those beautiful moments. The fight itself is up there in my top five best titan fights in black library it's it's a glorious last stand and i think it's i think it's done really well so to really set the stage uh, we haven't talked about the the other story arcs yet but we have had some large-scale battles some heavy weaponry centric battles where we're kind of following some knights around and they shoot their guns a few times and it's really badass but we haven't seen just the nuclear fury of the god machines marching at this point or up until this point. So when Tempestus reveals themselves and they mark four engine kills and Mortis has zero to show of it. So Tempestus shows up outnumbered. They immediately start to even the, their odds and Mortis like shits their pants for a minute. Like they were freaking out for a little bit because they the whole time they're thinking, well, Tempestus has to have another ace up their sleeve like this. We have to play it close to the vest. And so they're playing a very conservative game for kind of the rest of the book. So it really puts Mortis on the back foot for a while. And it was really satisfying to see because up until this point, Mortis has just been these really belligerent douchebags. I do want to sort of add at this point, it's other than perhaps the point Warwick brought up earlier, Brandon brought up earlier with the Volcano Cannon doing the multiple shots. You could take any couple of moments from this and play it well in Titanicus. One of the best Titanicus scenarios I've played is Last Stand at Magma City in the core rulebook. It's a really good scenario. Um, there are some problems with it, but it's a good recreation of the scene, and it is it holds up. All right, I'm going to go on a tangent here real quick. Martin, how would you convert an Imperator for Titanicus? <clears throat> okay, uh, first up, I wouldn't. Uh <laughs> <laughs> Um, okay, so, well, why not? Why not? No, no, no. I'll, I'll tangent your tangent and say um, Imperators do not fit into Titanicus because Titanicus is designed at a different scale game. Uh, Imperator should be double the size of your War Master, at which point you're looking at a Titan that is too big for the game. It's like playing a game of. It's like playing a game of 40k with a Warlord on the table. I think there have been attempts to do so, and we aren't. Because of those attempts to do so, I doubt we're actually ever going to see one. Titanicus. But if I was to, I'd use an Imperial Knight. Okay. I've seen some cool I've seen some cool Imperial Knights. There is yeah. one in Warhammer World, someone has converted like Warhammer World itself has a Imperator Titan converted a Warhammer a Imperial Knight within Titanicus Spires on top of it. And it looks Yeah, I good. think that's the one I, I think that's the one I've seen. Yeah, it's is it sits it sits in the Warhammer World uh, store in their glass case and it's really nice. And like, you know, that's the best we're going to get from GW. So I mean, I, I think you're right. A Imperator would be too big. I did have an idea of putting one together and doing a Titanicus scenario where you only bring knights and you have them fight to control the Imperator. Uh, I thought that would be kind of cool. But what I what I'd really want to buy the Battle Blink one for is a crashed one and make a scenery piece in the center of a table. That would be cool. 
but that's just, it's like buying the Clash Crash Thunder Hawk tile. It's a lot. <laughs> You've been to Warhammer World, right? Oh yeah, yeah. So my favorite table there is the Crashed Warlord. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I want I you know it's a real one, like yeah. it's an actual Forge World one because it's it's there. I just when I saw that I was like I want to be the level of rich where I can buy a Warlord Titan and a real one to use as terrain. <laughs> like, <laughs> all right, we we're off topic here. Let's yeah. Okay, so so back to the Magnus City. Uh, you know, Tempestus uh, fights their hardest. They're outnumbered and outgunned. They've got great support from the Knights of Terranus, from Coriel Zeth. They've got their own Skatari regiments, but they're just not able to hold out in the end. And eventually Aquila Ignis, the, the Legio Mortis Imperator Titan, gets into the fight, and that's it. Um, the uh, Each one of them dies one by one, and in the end, uh, Cavalario overloads the engines or the, the reactor in Deus Tempestus and nukes them. Meanwhile, uh, Coriel Zeth, the, the tech priest of the Magma City, enacts a uh, asset denial protocol, basically, and she sinks the city into the volcano. And it, it actually it erupts so violently that it destroys the Imperator Titan. It melts the ankles out from underneath and it falls over and pastes the crew on the inside. It falls over so hard. But it does leave the gun intact and allows it to be used in uh, later, more important battles, which I'm sure most of us will have seen at one point in our lives. Yeah, it is It is talked about how um, Aquila Ignis is recovered at one point. Just the gun. Yeah, it is just the gun. Because it is the gun that is found in Dawn of War. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Dark, Dark Crusade. Dark Crusade. Yes, that is the that is the gun, and that is the reference from it. I did not know that. That is awesome. That is an awesome Easter egg. That is so cool. All right, um, let's jump to the next uh, the next plot line here. So the next big plot line, I think, if we want to pick one up, we'll do the Caban Machine plot line. Now, this one's a really interesting one. Before I start, so before they started writing the Horus Heresy books, there's the book Vision of the Heresy. I'm not sure if you guys have ever come across it. It was basically an accumulation of images drawn from a card game. And one of them was the Caban machine. And it's from that that this entire plot line like imagines itself. Um, and there's a really good short story that predates this that you guys will get to eventually about the creation of the machine. It's one of those things that we're really, it, reading it before the book gives this plot line so much more depth. The idea there is you've got them. This is an artificial intelligence. One of the Magos on this has built a, an abominable intelligence, an AI, and has turned it on and then actually broken it by having it murder its creator and then released it to do it so willing on the planet. And it, so it shows up at the start of the book, attacking Legio Tempestus' reactors, and that's when the knights show up. Yeah, I, I've read the story that you're talking about, and I have that book. It's, it's somewhere in storage. But uh, I remember looking through that book maybe five, six or seven years ago, I had it out of storage for some reason. And then I had I had been reading these all these heresy books back then. And I was looking through this picture book that I'd had for a few years. And I was like, all these images make sense now. Uh, and it's it's some really cool old style Warhammer artwork. Uh, one, one of my favorite, uh, one of my favorite things to go through. I'm gonna have to dig that out now. I have no idea where it's at. Anyway, talking about the cabin machine, it's, as you said, it was an, an AI, which in, in Warhammer, AI doesn't stand for artificial intelligence. It stands for abominable intelligence because it is 
It is against every imperial dictate law guideline to create any kind of AI because of the war with the men of iron, uh, which were an AI race that almost destroyed humanity. Anyway, the, the cabin machine is, is this, this new AI that was corrupted to do the will of the dark mechanica more or less. And it, it's been manipulated. It, it's got like the mind of a child almost in that these uh, maguses were able to influence it to kill its only friend. And then it, it just sets it on this, this path of evil and bloodshed. Yeah. And it's uh it certainly sets the standard for not to be messed with as well. Thing is not a joke when it comes to, uh, to its fights. Although I do think when we'll get there, but how they take it down is actually quite interesting. But when we see it uh, originally with the, these knights, um, you know, these knights kind of ride up on it. And they, they don't think anything can take them, can take them. And the way it's described by the, uh, the night pilot who survives the first encounter with it is that it clearly wasn't a pilot because it was cold in the way that it reacted to him. It didn't have any like joy out of scoring hits or anything like that. Um, it's really interesting. Um, AI in the 40 K universe is a fascinating thing in that it's, it's not allowed. I think about it a lot just because of how we AI we see in our, our world today. Um, full disclosure, I actually work for an AI company. So, you know, I work with this stuff. Um, you can see how it could go off the rails very quickly. Uh, but it, it's interesting to think about. And uh, yeah, it's it's one of the few AIs we see. There's a few shacking up with the Dark Angels, but we don't talk about that. And uh, But uh, it's, it's, it's a really cool, cool machine. Yeah, I really enjoy its appearance. And then the fight itself, the first fight with the Knights, is a really good scene. I mean, once again... Once I got my head around the fact that it's not a fight about our current knights, it's a fight about the epic knights with their las rifles and other weapons. It's one of the few fight scenes in the book. I think that's the thing we haven't talked about. The reason we're having to do this in a weird way is there aren't that many set-piece battles in the book for a Warhammer book. And this opening fight is the opening fight for the first section, it feels like. Yeah, uh, I agree. The, the fight is quite good. Um, as we follow this thing along, it ends up it's it's serving the Lucas Crom is uh, is who it's serving. Oh, that's a good picture of it. It's 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 really it's seeing that picture of it actually gives me a better understanding of like how it does what it does. You know, it just goes around casually killing civilians and stuff like that. Yeah, there's there's a scene later on after it's recovered uh, after this reactor. Uh, is destroyed. There's a scene later on where it, it exhibits just like straight up cruelty. It, it kills this guy out in the desert for no reason. You know, he's not in the way. Nobody orders orders him to be destroyed. He just, the cabin machine does its, its own thing. And then uh, a scene later on after that where it destroys a train. And uh, what the, the character we haven't introduced yet, Dahlia Sithra, sees what its, its personal manifold is thinking. And it imagines this mound of skulls in a river of blood. And it, it really showcases that this AI has already been corrupted by this, this scrap code, this, uh, the, the dark mechanicum teachings basically. And it's, it's really horrific to imagine this AI that's perfectly capable of tirelessly serving the ruinous powers. It's, it's really creepy to think about. Yeah. It's the scene on the train is really good. Cause that 
it's a such a throwaway line about corn. Like you have to really like notice it and think about it, but it is. And then it looks like the Cabana engine isn't that similar to a lot of the corn eight monsters that Forge will put out. And we're starting to work on around this time of the book. So it really fits into that theme. Um, and I, the, the scene before that, where it's destroying that scrap prospector was such a iconic, like this is the grim dark his whole appearance felt john blanchian the appearance of the monster felt like it had been described by john blanch yeah i mean there's a lot i dislike about the book i think that's coming in a bit but that those that scene is great and the cabana itself is a really powerful tool yeah i really like that scene uh with with the old scrap prospector like you said because it well it it in this book it might have felt like a waste of time sometimes but it's a really good descriptor of the 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 setting of mars where you've kind of got these these independence prospectors out looking for junk basically to make a living and this old man was like a, he's a washout skatari his implants didn't work or whatever so he couldn't make it as a skatari and he's like maybe i've got more in common with the feral servitors out here on the wasteland than you know other people so it's yeah, just kind of getting that personal perspective on the gra- the you know like the granular level was really interesting to me. Well, and I think that that scene in particular as well, uh, I, it helps demonstrate that Mars still definitely has a Wild West element to it. It has not been explored in every nook and cranny, which is going to be important to the Dahlia plotline as well. But it kind of helps reinforce that hey, just because this is the the seat of the Mechanicum. This world has not been completely tamed. I think when we think of Terra a lot, we think of a world that's been completely tamed. But I think the book does a good job of showing that Mars is not like that. Yeah, it's it's very the the human element is very granular in this book. It's, it's yeah, you could you could if I wanted to make that scene on the tabletop, I'd use Necromunda to do it. It's a Necromunda scene. There's Necromundal models. That's that scene. The the Necromunda kits that are coming oh, out right yeah. now are so cool too. Definitely. So should we uh, should we talk about the the kind of final fight with the cabin machine, or do you guys want to talk about the tunnel more? Let's should we do the first part of the Dahlia arc and then merge these two because that's where they end up. Uh, is there anything with the knights other than the cabin machine? Well, so the 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 the, the, the MIU on that one night is basically pulling that night right. to the cabin machine. So after. Uh, after Raph Maven's engine or his knight is destroyed, it gets rebuilt and he's put back into service, but the controls are always leading him somewhere else. So eventually he just follows it. And eventually they wind up in the same place as the cabin machine, because that's what wounded him. And the machine spirits trying to tell him we've got some unfinished business. So that's really all of that plot arc. Like the cabin machine exists. The knights get into a fight and then they reappear at the end of the Dalai plot line. Right. And uh, the, so the machine spirit... When I, when I want to talk about the knights, I I more so want to talk about the knights that, like, yeah, we'll, we'll, the, those two knights we'll get to with the Dahlia storyline. I definitely want to talk about the knights showing up to the Magma City as well, because it's one of my favorite scenes in the book when uh, Regulus and... Uh, what's the ambassador's name? Melgator. Yeah, when Regulus and Melgator show up to arrest Coriel Zeth and all the knights come out and she's basically like, fuck yeah. around and find out. <laughs> yeah, very epic scene. Yeah, I suspect... I'm trying to decide how you want to do Zeth. Do we want to do Zeth after Dahlia and then tidy up? Yeah, I, th- I think that'll work because 
the Delia arc merges away from Zeth, and then we can come back to that and talk about the the in, interior conclusion of the Magnus City. Yeah. So, uh, Warwick, why don't you lead us off? With- so, Delia is your standard human uh, transcriber on Terra, except she's a little smarter than other people, and when you start to exhibit signs of individuality or imagination in the Warhammer universe, you either get a bullet in your head or a computer. And she drew the short straw in that she's going to be executed because she modified her computer to work more efficiently. And when her supervisor finds out about it, he invokes this draconian law of you've modified a sacred machine or a sacred device of the machine god, you must now be destroyed. Because she's violated its its sanctity or whatever. It's it's yeah, it's the most Warhammer thing ever. You've made your life better, and now we must kill you for it. Long story short, instead of uh getting getting the old 45 caliber brain surgery, Coriel Zeth sends an emissary to pick her up because somehow Coriel Zeth figures out about this. She's a very well-connected tech priest in, in uh, tech priest society. And she notices something special about Dahlia, which is very lucky for Dahlia. And Coriel Zeth has this, this awesome or this super secret project she's working on. And here's, here's something Brandon texted me about because we just did Battle for the Abyss when this guard, Romeo 31, comes to pick up Dahlia. He's talking about spaceships and he's like, uh, Mars has the biggest spaceships, but the Jovian shipyards are about to lay claim to that title when the Furious Abyss is completed. And Brandon texts me out of nowhere, and he's like, that was supposed to be a fucking secret! How does this guy know about it? And I'm just like, yeah, it's bullshit. It's just, it's more, it's more of this, like, really poor communication between writers that, like, why, why does this pissant guard for Coriel Zeth know about the most super secret spaceship project in the galaxy and it's such a throwaway line Brandon and I, I assume and Martin you're pissed about it too but it's such bullshit I'm going to restrain from too much because I'm going to wait to talk about Zeth for that all I will say is that we are entering the realms of Saturday morning cartoons and uh, yeah 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 I think it's, a it's good assessment Classic Graham McNeil. Just, well, we'll make this very important thing a throwaway line. Anyway. Now, if I had to guess, these two books were being written at the same time, and both writers had a deadline to hit, and they did not have time to coordinate. Well, anyway, Delia shows up on Mars, gets introduced to Coriel Zeth. I think Coriel Zeth is a pretty interesting character. Uh, she's this tech priest that is working on this super secret project called the Akashic Reader, and it's basically this magic, or I guess psychic throne thing that amplifies the occupant's ability to know stuff. And by piecing together all of this pseudoscience psychic bullshit, you're eventually, you're you're potentially able to plug someone in and make them learn everything instantly. And there's, you know, there's this, uh, this crack team of engineers that are put together to build this thing. And, you know, they get along very well. They coordinate very well. And eventually they build the device but what they're they're basing all of their there's an interesting part I think it's important to talk about that Delia was basing all of her like power input uh, power input notes on what 
Coriel Zeth had been using thus far, but to use like the finished project, they actually need to link it with the Astronomicon, which... Can I just say real quick that I actually like all of these engineer characters except except for Dahlia, because she's the only one that, in my opinion, doesn't deserve to be there. Because she's only there because she's got a magical bullshit button. Oh yeah, she's she's a bit of a Mary Sue, boys. She can, she's just, she's, um, she, she's got this ability to, to see possibilities where no one else can. And it's very handy for her because when something doesn't work on this project, she can just redesign it in a whole new way. She's not the Mary Sue. There is another Mary Sue. We'll talk about her in a minute. But no, the, my concern with the team, let's talk about the team, the people building this incredibly, the passion product of one of the main Magnuses of Mars is five people. Five people, most of which are teenagers. Five best teenagers. One of which grew up on Earth for some reason. They're the five best people, Martin. Come on now. In the uh, in False Gods, when Horus is having his little vision quest and he's in the, the gene vaults of the Emperor, they're huge and sprawling and there are hundreds and thousands of... Uh, of gene scientists down there working on the Primarch and the Astartes project, basically. Like, the Emperor and all of his horses and all of his men were working on super soldiers. Coriel Zeth needs five people to build a knockoff Golden Throne. Well, I mean, they did spend an entire chapter talking about which one's the hottest. I'm just saying. Well, it turns out she actually needed a couple of more because it doesn't work. <laughs> I forgot about that. That was that was really important. But we we needed that information. We <laughs> needed that information. We, hey, you know, remember how we talked about how there was all this stuff that could have been expanded with Tempestus? There just wasn't. So, there just wasn't room. Like, I don't know <laughs> what that's hard to think about. So they build this thing, but they're not compensating for the right power input because they don't have the right data. Well, Coriel says we're going to link it with the Astronomicon, which is this massive psychic beacon that the emperor uses to guide ships through the war and it's it's the most one of the most powerful things in the mortal realm or the mortal universe so delia freaks out and she's like it's not gonna work well it doesn't because it it links with this psyker and fucking annihilates him just turns him into ash but he he learns everything and he's able to get a, a message to Dahlia. What's important about this scene is that Dahlia is in the room when it happens and she comes in contact with the astronomicon too and because she's got this magical bullshit power, it somehow links her with the fate of the Emperor, and it 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 demands that her her story arc diverge from the Magma City at that point. So her and her friends. I'm not sure about that. I don't think this is where she gets the 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 golden stuff she gets at the end. I think she gets that from the guy at the prison. She just gets through this through shenanigans. So she always had some kind of cognitive ability to be very handy with machines. She doesn't start... Oh wait, no shit, she does. Because on the way down there, they're going through security, and she can see the new spheric link between Coriel Zeth and her guards. So you're right, Martin. She does have the magical bullshit power before she hits the uh, astro... I almost call it the Necronomicon. The Astronomicon. Well, and and Warwick, you're going to appreciate this because we're going to find out that, and, and this is my gripe, she's Palpatine in uh, Rise of Skywalker. So that 30 years from now, I can be the one pulling this, yeah, whatever. Martin, we'll have to send you that video and you're not going to thank us for it. <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah, but no, she basically, she gets the message 
it seems to me like she's some kind of latent psyker. Did I pick up on that correctly? Oh, no, but that was that was actually directly addressed earlier okay. on. They, they continually refer to her as some... Because uh, they talk about putting her on the machine itself. Mm-hmm. But they don't want to use her like that because they know she's just going to melt. And they don't want to melt her. Right. Cor- Coriel says she's too valuable for other stuff. But basically she gets told, like, oh, Mars is a lie. And there's a dragon... And so you need to go to the Maze of Night. Which is a real place. The Noctis Labyrinthus. Uh, yeah, most of these places are. Yeah, I mean, I have a hard time keeping a straight face when I talk about the Noctis Labyrinthus in my class. Because I am an astronomy teacher in my day job. And I do do a tour of Mars in the classroom. And this is a particular point that, mm, yes. <laughs> do you get to do you get to Olympus Mons and say, this is the seat of the Fabricator General? <laughs> I try not to. This is where Kelbor Hal lives. This is where the Void Dragon sleeps. Bear with me, class. This, this is, is all real. It will be on the test. Uh, but yeah, so she gets, uh, she goes to head to the Noctis Labyrinthi, and that's where she splits from Adept Coriel Zeph. She's, she sets out to go there. I think there is a couple of good scenes on the way, and points I do want to, this is a very weak, let's say weak story arc. It can seem very weak, but there are a couple of good points. She leaves, and they get picked up. Uh, that Romus, uh, the bodyguard, shows back up again. They they try their escape because they want to run away from Zeth, and she appears, and then Zeth lets her go because she right. knows that she needs to go. And this this bodyguard is basically like, well, my orders aren't to keep you here; they're just to keep you safe. So Romu thirty one, this Skatari bodyguard guy, goes with them basically because he feels as though their fates are connected or some shit, whatever. I think we need to, when we get to the final strand, which I think we can talk about the larger beats of the story at that point. I kind of always got the vibe that his orders were changed at that point. Because as soon as we cut from that scene, we go back to Zeth, who's doing some other stuff. Zeth's aware of what's going on, because she can presumably see through every one of her minions, because she's Mechanicus. So she's like, oh, she wants to go somewhere. Well, hey, Ro, your order's this now. You aren't keeping that. You need to protect her. Yeah, I, I agree. I think I think that came from Zeth to let her go. Yeah, but the, then they travel through the on the train, which is where they run into the caban machine. But even before we get there, there's some really good scenes of them just exploring Mars. Yeah, it's great. It's great world building for Mars, uh, and this this book does that well. Yeah, on, on many occasions, uh, it does a great job world building Mars, which is awesome because I feel like we haven't we don't get that a lot for Terra. So it's nice to get that for something in the solar system like this, especially something where you know a lot of people are pretty familiar with. Yeah, it's um, the the scene is set really well. We get kind of these like kind of old westy frontier towns, and they're populated by these kind of sparse, very rugged people. Uh, it it's really neat to think about uh, and and to see really. So uh, eventually, the party is. Uh, they board a train going deeper and deeper into the Martian waste. They're on a uh, on a supply train, basically running near the Noctis Labyrinthus. And while they're going through a tunnel, the cabin machine intercepts them. And the, the the way that the cabin machine finds out they're there is because a an assassin was sent. One of the one of the five of the crack team didn't go with them. She stayed behind and is interrogated by a this tech priest assassin, basically. And they get the information that way. That's how the cabin machine finds them. I actually think it's cool how that uh, that tech priest assassin ends up extracting the information because the uh, the tech priest girl that you know she's ordered to delete their destination from her memory coils, and the assassin's like, "Well, 
the memory still exists in your flesh underneath and basically just shoves a spike through her eye and gets into the the brain matter and gets it that way. I thought that was a pretty cool uh, way that uh, they got at that information. But we've kind of already gone over the cabin machine in the in the tunnel here, so I won't go too much more into that scene. I think the one thing we need to bring up on that scene, though, is the fact that the reason the party aren't all killed by our abominable intelligence at this point is that our primary character, Daya, is able to focus that psychic power that they've been talking about and make the machine realize they've already killed, they're already dead, cast an illusion spell, and the cabin machine rolls off thinking its job's been done, and they get to jump into a Cargo 5, which I enjoy because it's one of those pinch points which... Games Workshop introduced this new idea. He introduced the idea of the Cargo 5, and it's been brought up multiple times later that we've got multiple types of cargo leading to the Cargo 9, latest kit from in Necromunda. It's all part of that same arc. And they jump in that and then drive off to the Noctus. Yeah, and what I enjoy about the Cargo 5 that they're in is that it's kind of a piece of crap. And so they're just like driving through Mars in this ramshackle truck. Which, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I just enjoy that scene. Yeah, it, it did make me sort of go, I wonder if I could build something, you know, out of that Cargo 9 kit for my war bearers. Like, they need some ammunition transports, obviously. And it's sort of, yeah, it's evocative. I bet you you could build something cool like that out of, like, the Gene Stealer truck. Yeah, probably the Gene Stealer truck. You can something very similar to a Cargo 5. It's, there's, they talk about it having caterpillars, though. So I thought more of the um, the hideously expensive resin Necromunda one they put out recently. Sort of the vibe I was getting from it. So okay, yeah, man, that would be a cool conversion. I'd like to see that. So they they hop in this cargo five and they head into the Noctis Labyrinthi, and they uh, Dahlia just kind of knows where to go. And again, I think we can chalk this up to her latent psychic power. Um, but they they arrive at I don't did they I don't remember did they have a name for this? But just kind of the threshold of where the dragon is. Yeah, they find a cave, and then they realize there's something there, and they go into the cave. It's kind of not really well talked about. There's something in the cave, and they start discovering stuff. Yeah, and, and they basically they run into this tech adept guy who's been there forever with his battle servitor. Dahlia gets kind of the story of the dragon, which the dragon came to Earth at some point um, and was defeated by the Emperor, and then the Emperor brought it to Mars in the interest of starting the Mechanicum. Maybe. So this is the weird thing about this. So we get brought in, we get shown their machine that he makes auroras of that kills people, apparently. But the story, the book, there's a book in there that describes the stories of the dragon. And it's definitely this is where we enter unreliable narrator territory. Definitely. Like, he, she reads the book and she experiences a vision. She's thrown into Libya in, like, the Byzantine Empire because they reference the... Emperor Theodosius, which is the guy who built the walls of um, Constantinople. It's it's a rough experience for anyone to be thrown into Libya, let alone from Mars. Yeah, well, Libya was better at the time during a... So then the Emperor shows up to fight this dragon, and it's... And it references stories they've sort of told each other around the campfire, so to speak, during the travel down here. They All the famous five, so to speak, have been talking about dragons, and now she sees this dragon story that they were talking about. This was a very familiar story to me, because it's the the story of the Emperor. Is, it's very similar to the, the legend of St. George. Oh, it is the St. George story. There's no two ways around it. Oh, yeah. I actually, 
I have a better one, kind of. <laughs> I've got a. I've got it for the listeners. I've got a tattoo of Saint okay, George okay. on my right arm. Yeah, I see. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. No. It, it, it's definitely Saint George, and it's yeah. Which well, it it's it's very interesting when uh, I know my brother Maniple brought this up in Fulgrim, how uh, authors will oftentimes interject uh, real world myth into these stories to make them you know, kind of, kind of link them in a, in a quasi real way. So it was really interesting for me to see this, uh, this version of St. George, which, uh, again, is significant to me, but he, they kind of go over this story that, um, the, it's the dragon's memory as it remembers it. And, uh, it says that it was, it was a shard of its former self, uh, recovering from a war with its kin, which I, that, that's a pretty clear reference to, well, it's clear in quotation marks reference to the war in heaven when the, the Catan or Satan were fighting themselves and the, uh, the, uh, Eldar gods and, and all that shit. So, uh, that's, that's all wrapped up in super ancient history. Uh, and it's, it's really funny how the, the events of the Horus heresy, uh, resound throughout the ages going into 40k, but the events of the war in heaven shaped the events of the Horus Heresy sometimes. So all of that, all of that ancient history is really starting to stack up. And I think we see it in this scene. That's what's interesting. So yeah, to. it's, I mean, it's very clear that they're trying to set him up as the Catan, uh, the Void Dragon. Um, it's really odd. I mean, the only reason it doesn't feel quite right to the modern 40k aficionado is the fact that this is based off the third edition codex of the necrons uh this is pre matt ward's tomb kings in space that came out five years later um this is still there's only been one necron codex when this book was written so they're still really new to the law and we're still really in that base stage so basically what we get from this scene what this this ancient mega says is that the emperor imprisoned this thing here because he knew that for him to be able to reclaim the galaxy, he would need the, the priestly order of Mars to build and maintain machinery for him. So this is where this is where our first scene kind of comes back into play, where the Emperor set the stage for all of this stuff to take place, and that he needed the Void Dragon because the dreams of the dragon inspire the priests of Mars, and that's... That's the sense we get from this scene. Without the inspiration of the Void Dragon, the the priesthood of Mars would not be able to do what they do. Yeah, to conquer the galaxy, I need this alien over here to build my factories for me. He was pulling the strings all along. It even basically says that like it was his will that uh, Dahlia should show up there to be the guardian of the Void Dragon um, as well. So it really was a... I've been pulling the strings all along moment. Which you needed to have because the biggest so after head scratch sorry. of my thing was how did a latent psycho get off Terra? So after Dahlia has her little vision quest back to ancient times, uh, this this ancient tech priest and his guardian servitor turn into dust and Dahlia is now empowered with this. She's somehow linked with the fate of the Emperor, basically. And it before this guy dissolves into dust he says he'd been uh, or no she she gets the sense after he's gone that he was there for around like ten thousand years or longer and so the emperor's 
powers have basically extended their lifespan and they have to be here to keep the dragon quiescent more or less. One of the things that I like the kind of the reference to the Necrons, the old school Necrons is one of the, the duties of the protector is to make sure that the, the dragon's children can never find it, which I thought was a really great reference to the Necrons. Something obviously, if you're not familiar with them, you wouldn't know, but it's a really a good shout out there. I thought anyway, back in the long, long ago, the Necrons cut up their gods and used them like Pokemon. Yeah. Except when this book was written, they didn't, which is why it gets even weirder. Yeah, in the grim darkness of the far future, there are only retcons. As Don't steal said. my line. Well, real quick, let's talk about the Cabot machine's end here. Because the Cabot machine finds her again, but then the Knights of Terranus find the Cabot machine. And they're basically able to kill it by invoking the legend of the Drunken Master and using no... Their tactic is to not use tactics. Right, so... Raph Maven kind of figures out that this this AI thing has it has all the textbook responses to everything. So Raph and his partner are basically like, we need to be as unpredictable as un- unpredictable as possible. And the cabin machine is super tough because where knights have ion shields, the cabin machine has a void shield, much like a titan. So it's a lot harder to deal with than than anything else. But you know they they juke and jive, they they zig when they're supposed to zag and. Uh, they drop like a whole cliff of rocks on it, and eventually it shields go out, and Raph stabs it in the heart, basically. So the cabin machine, you know, it almost gets them. It it beats them down to it beats them down to the rivets, but uh, the Knights of Terranus are able to come out on top, and Delia now has you know super emperor power, so she's able to do the whole laying of the hands on the machines and repair the knights there on the spot. So what did what did you guys take away from that scene? Pretty, pretty pretty, epic fight scene, if I'm being honest. The, the fight with the end of the Caban Machine is everything I wanted it to be. It's a great scene. I wish there was more knights fighting. I actually enjoyed the machine that I heal herself at the end. As a bookmark to the start of the story and being like, hey, look, the Emperor has planned everything. There's a lot of the stuff of the Delilah story arc I could do without. Like, let's stop her being a teenager. Let's cut half these characters out. So that's something we haven't really talked about is the fact they she had these retinue of other people and a lot of the book is them talking and being teenagers which i didn't need yeah but we definitely we needed the chapter of who's the hottest that was very important it's modern day shakespeare let me tell you yeah but i enjoyed that ending like the sort of like it bookmarked it said hey look she's here for a purpose like the emperor had set this up for a purpose and if we're going to allow this idea to exist, which I think is actually not a bad idea for Mechanicum, it bookmarked it well. I, I enjoyed, I think I enjoyed that ending so much because it tied back into that beginning so well. Um, I think that's what made me like it so much. But let's talk about the ending that I really loved, which is the last charge of the Knights of Terranus. So in addition to Coriel Zeth petitioning the uh, Legio Tempestus, she also asked for backup from the Knights of Terranus. And Lord Commanders Verdi Quarter and Catarix show up with like, they, weren't there like 12 knights in total at the defense of the gate? There's a, there's a, a quick subplot. It's a very thin, well, not thin, but it's a pretty important subplot where the Fabricator General Kelbor Hal gets the access codes to reopen the Volts of Moravec. And the Volts of Moravec were sealed off by the Emperor himself because Moravec was a crackpot tech priest who was dabbling in warp fuckery. So now that... Let's take it back a few steps. And before we get to that 
final battle. I think it's probably actually worth just talking through the plot line as if we, from the point of view of the Mechanicum, this is the overall meta plot. Because I think that's sort of what we've missed and we can sort of finish with the big battle. That's that's a good idea. We kind of skipped over that. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's I think that framed things a bit easier. Because if we go, so moving on from like the Dahlia subplot, the weird magic kit. The start of the book, we get a lot of the Mechanicum trying to decide whether they're with or not with Horus. Yeah, and he does a lot to win them over as well, which is giving them data of an STC, which to them is damn near the Holy Grail. Yeah, two STCs. Thank you, Warwick. Which he got from the Eurasian technocracy that we saw way back in, was that book two? So it's nice to see that come for, full circle. But he also offers to unlock these vaults of Moravec, which the emperor had said could never be unlocked. Um, and that's where we get this, the, the introduction of the scrap code, which is functionally computer code infused with warp power. Um, as an iron warrior, I'm a big fan of scrap code. It's the point... The even move to that point was interesting because, like, that opening section of the book before we get to the vaults, the Mechanicum is won over before they become the Dark Mechanicum in the opening of the vaults. They, that's where the whole, the Emperor's done nothing for us. What, what, what's the Emperor ever done for us? That takes root and goes, root, goes in well. And I think at that point, the Mechanicum would have rebelled even without opening the vaults. I, I honestly, I think that the STCs was all they needed to go. They were already unhappy. Like, Kelbor Howe was very unhappy with the arrangement. I think Regulus showing up with the, that STC wafer, that was all they actually needed. The vaults of Moravec kind of damned them, if you will. Yeah, I, the, yeah. the vaults are definitely, like, aren't so much as Horus wanting to do it. You get the sense that it's Erebus, if I'm being blunt, being like, hey, this is the way we not only get them, but we also get the gods in. Well, I think it's maybe the Warmaster dangling the carrot a little bit. He, you know, he's he's definitely uh, really leaning on Kelbor Howe that, you know, not only am I going to give you this, this standard technology that the Emperor was going to give you anyway, you're also going to get the stuff the Emperor cut you off of. So maybe, maybe it's the, maybe it's Horus getting those golden handcuffs ready because you know, once somebody is in the thrall of the the ruinous powers, there's not a, a lot of hope. So it's, as Brandon said, you know, it, it damns the dark Mechanicum at that point. There's no road back after that. So it, it, it really stops anybody from kind of like, you know, saying maybe we've taken this too far. They don't have a choice after that. The, and the Emperor cutting us off from it, that was my take when I first read the book. But this time through, I wasn't 100% sure it was the Emperor who did it. The vaults were created by a guy who got run off terror because he was developing stuff so dark that terror turned on him. I think they were locked up by a lot of people. A lot of people like that's too dark for us to deal with. And then I think when when the emperor showed up, he he and Kelbor Hal went to the vaults of Moravec and that's when the emperor said if you ever open these vaults, any agreement between us will be null and void and Terra will make war upon Mars. These, these vaults have to be sealed forever. And Kilbor Hal figures out that even though he was recording the path to the vaults, the Emperor somehow went into his memory and deleted it. And Kilbor Hal was angry about that. Yeah, I think, but my take was that the, the Emperor was like, hey, those vaults you've got locked, you aren't going to open them. So it's not so much they had opened, the Emperor put stuff in there. It was more of the, Kelbor Hal was like, we're going to rebel. And while we're at it, we're going to open those things that he said we shouldn't open, despite the fact we never opened them before anyway. Well, it does say, though, that, that, that Kelbor Hal didn't have the ability to open them 
that came from Horace. So yeah, I think you're both right in in a sense. I think that uh, I, I think that it was a multitude of people who who sealed the vaults, but it was also the emperor that was like, no, these are never being opened. They they open the vaults and get this scrap code. And let's talk about the um, the death of innocence here because this is just a massive cataclysm that happens as a result of opening these vaults and it's not immediately after they start building some servitors and battle automata and all that stuff in imbued with the scrap code they start mutating skatari there's like this big weather storm going on above the fabricator general's uh, uh forges it, it's just this anomaly that builds up over the course of i think a couple of weeks something that isn't really very well timelined is the fact that they are opening the vaults at the same time Zeth, who are a good Magos, who we probably should introduce here in a minute, was doing her experiment and they focused the light of the Astronomicon in. And that messed things up. So that's that's something that's handled really well in the first few books. There's always a parallel between, like, I think when, when Horus is going through his vision quest is when... Um, Euphrates Kila has her saintly, like she wakes up and she she performs some kind of miracle at that point. So there's there's all oftentimes a parallel between something good happening and something bad happening. So I think this book does that really well at the same time, where when they fire up the Akashic reader for the first time, also the death of innocence is going on uh, very closely on the timetable. Yeah, and Based off of my reading, the death of innocence doesn't happen as soon as the the vaults are open. Like they seem to have them open for a bit and then they blast the scrap code out to everyone. Yeah, that's my take on it as well. Um, There's one line in there that talks about how it didn't all happen because the Astronomicon was focused as they were opening it and they try again and then... Again, I know you guys don't like Graham McNeil as an author... But his description of the death of innocence as it happens and, and the kickoff of the Martian Civil War, this is some of my favorite writing that we've had so far. Oh, it's great stuff. And I think I don't I like him. The problem is that I also dislike stuff he does. It's it's not that we hate everything he does. He just does some things poorly. We don't we don't have to get it back into another rant about Graham McNeil. Let's just let's stick to the book here. But no, uh this is where, and again, I wish they would have expanded on this more, but this is where we get a little bit of talk about other Titan Legios. Um, I believe it says that a couple of them, their reactors go critical and they're just wiped off right yeah. at the start. It, Ignatum basically has to retreat from Mars, um, mm-hmm. which I wish they would have put a little more time into. One of the three, fa- of the three founding Legios, I feel like Ignatum doesn't get the time in the sun they deserve, even though they're the only loyalist one left. <laughs> they, they, they make they make up for it in the Siege of Terra. Yeah. Well, and correct me if I'm wrong here, Martin. Isn't Ignatum your Legio for Loyalists? It is. Yeah. But no, it's uh it, it's really well done. I, I love the the Basilica. Uh I know we talked about it a little bit earlier in the uh in the podcast, but the Basilica where they're calling for an end of hostilities and a reverence to the machine god, and then a capital ship just smashes into it and goes nuclear right in the middle of it. It's it's pretty poetic, and it's... Uh, Graham McNeil writes it in a very cinematic way, and Brandon, I'm telling you, I've already told you this a couple of times, if you like that kind of writing, Dan Abnett takes that to 11 in No No Fear. I believe you. I believe you, but I, I really enjoy it here because we get to see... There are times in the Horus Heresy where I feel like we're focused on a battle, 
but it feels like this battle's going on when an entire war is supposed to be going on. And in this book, I can tell that there's a war happening. There is not just one battle here. Um, and I, I, I like that. Um, I like that a lot. But uh, no, the, the sequence of the Death of Innocence is really good. So I think before we go much further, we probably should talk about the main characters in the Mechanicum. We've got uh, K. Bahal, who is the Fabricator General. We have his friends. We got the emissary from the Warmaster, whose name is going to remember. Regulus. Regulus, who's been in some of the other books. And then we have... Um, Milligatory. He's an ambassador uh, from the Mechanicum to the Imperium. And then Lucas Crom. Crom. And they're, they're, the, they're the Dark Mechanicum. They become the core of it. They're the, they're the main bad guys. Ertzi Malevolus, too. Yeah, but Ertzi Malevolus doesn't show up really at all, except for a couple of conversations. Yeah, and on the other side, we've got Zeth. Zeth, and, Lucas Crom, uh, and Ipluvian Maximal. Yeah, and Kane. Yeah, Lo- Locum Kane is actually a very important character. Yeah. Um, Locum mm-hmm. Kane is fantastic when he appears in later books. So one thing I'd say about it, so one thing I noticed in rereading is that the division between these two characters is that the human ones are the good guys. When we introduce Zeth, we talked about how she doesn't show any skin, but she is clearly a female form, insinuated with all her, all her dedications. And then we talk about um, Cain as being this sort of very well-chiseled man. And he's, all his augmentations are hidden to clearly maintain this facade of humanity. And all of the dark mechanical guys are completely opposite. 80% of the Fabricator General is now machine, and there's very little rotting humanity left within him. And, yeah, it's a little on the nose. <laughs> yeah, I, I definitely, I picked up on that, especially after you called it out in our in our show chat. And I was like, oh yeah, that, that definitely is the case. Um, I would love to introduce Graham McNeil to Belisarius Call and then be like, he's a good guy. <laughs> I mean, to be honest, when, we, when you next come to Kane and he rolls forward on his giant tank creds, he catches up with the program. <laughs> he, he, he becomes a lot more one with the machine. I think the, the scene that really calls that out is when, um, was it Kane talking to, it was either, it was either Maximal or Kane talking to Coriel Zeth, and he's using a flesh voice, what they call a flesh voice, because tech priests normally communicate in binaric, which is just like code signal transmitted to one another. But, um, he, he wants to communicate in like a regular human voice. And Coriel Zeth is like, uh, that's kind of a, a an immature affectation. And then she gets to thinking about it. It's like, well, I've got mine too, because she's got just this exquisite female form in all of her augmetics. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's really interesting. It, they, they each exhibit this, this very human element, as you said, Martin. So that, that was a really good call out. I want to thank you for that. And to follow on from, you mentioned, you know, Delia has that Mary Sueish feel. Um, Zeth is it. Zeth has created a method of talk that isn't binary Kant. It's this new spheric system, and it's new, and it's different. And she's all about creation, and she doesn't believe in the Omnissiah, and how incredible is Discovery, and everything we know as 40k fans. The Mechanicum isn't, and she is. Yeah, it's really interesting that uh, that Graham McNeil wrote her as basically an atheist, which she kind of brings that up. And it's very odd to see on Mars. I, my takeaway from that is like, I don't, I don't see anyone who 
presents themselves as any kind of atheist, making it very far in the priesthood. And she is a senior Magus. You know, and it's, it, I realized, I mean, think what he's trying to do with the character is to be like, hey, look what would the mechanical could have been if it wasn't for the heresy. I think that's the play, but it isn't presented very well. And when I read it, I'm just like, she doesn't fit in with what I'm expecting here, guys. And that's where I get caught. And it, I have to think about it to get that bigger, that bigger narrative that he's trying to go for. And that annoys me. I got to be honest. I actually think it's a little bit more sinister than that. He's like, look at the progress that people could achieve if they weren't held back by religion, which as a religious person, I kind of resent. But uh, yeah, I, I agree with the Mary Sue uh, argument because she's just perfect. Even when, you know, we can, I think we can jump to the end a bit here. Even when she's confronted by the uh, tech priest assassin, who has access to the new sphere technology. She's like, ah, but you don't have access to the new new sphere technology that I do. I was broadcasting secret code all along. And it, yeah, it's like she, she ends up getting Coriel Zeth ends up getting shot and killed, but as she's dying, she's able to transmit a basically kill code to this assassin. And then a servitor picks up the assassin and throws her into a pit of lava. I love the assassin. So the assassin shows up. So obviously we don't get straight to her being killed. They try and bring the Mary Sue with them because that's what you want to do if you've got one of those sitting around. You don't want to leave them with the emperor. So they try and bring her over and they show up and try and threaten her and she doesn't take it. And the assassin mind wipes one of her favorite assistants and then she turns him into this bulk servitor that she then uses to throw the assassin in a lava. It's a really good story, but it is just overdone by the fact that Zeth can do nothing wrong. Yeah, she she could do it. She could plan for everything except getting shot, which she's got a personal void shield. But these tech priest assassins have bullets that go through void shields. You think that like because because Coriel Zeth talks about like, oh, yeah, I know that's an assassin. I know what they're capable of, but she couldn't plan for the obviousness of getting shot by bullets that ignore void shields. Though she was able to survive it and blow up her city. So it's like, yeah. Yeah. So she survived it long enough to, uh, to initiate the clean your room protocol to, to quote one of my buddies. That's the part of that. I, that, that sequence I have a problem with is the fact that she lived so long, Uh, not the void shield piercing bullets, because if you're a mechanicum assassin and your job is to kill people who have personalized void shields, you should have bullets to get through that. So I actually don't have a problem with that. I have a problem with the fact that she's like, oh, I just been shot in the chest. All right, well, I can hack your system and drop you and then order my servitor to throw you into a pit of lava and then enact the clean your room protocol. And also just also get an Imperator Titan kill because I'm just that awesome. Yeah, talk about luck. So that's that's kind of where Coriel Zeth's story ends. Um, do we want to get into the the last charge of the Knights of Terranus? And we're getting long in the tooth here. We probably want to wrap it up soon. Yeah, we do. I just want to talk about how great it is. The fact that uh, the ambassador tries to escape and gets ends up on the business end of the Knight Commander's Avenger Gatling cannon. It's a. It's one of the. It's definitely one of my favorite scenes where they uh, the, the knights sally forth out of this gate they've been holding for several days, and it's like 
uh, I think only four or five of them are left and they're all, they're all like the hardest veterans. They're, they're the toughest dudes in the whole unit and they charge out over this bridge and they're, they're blowing up these mutated uh, servitors and they're, they're like uh, these bulk Skatari that are just like twisted and hideous from all the dark Mechanicum tech. And, you know, they're shooting left and right. They're stabbing with their swords. They're crushing guys underfoot. And, one by one, they're dying across this bridge, fighting their way towards this emissary's palanquin. Which, let's take a moment to talk about that. That's, like, just some more 40k shit. So, you've got, like, the most advanced technological race in the setting. Or at least, like, the most technologically advanced guys in the Imperium. And their preferred mode of transportation is a pallet carried by a bunch of dudes. Wrap your brain around that, folks. Well, anyway... The, the Knights of Terranus. Yeah, it it's great. It, it's very 40K. Oh, um, super 40K. Super Warhammer. But I, I just love how they're like, he's got a personal void shield, and they're like, I'll see your personal void shield and raise you Gatling cannon. <laughs> yeah, it's like a personal void shield's meant to, you know, stop assassins, but not a knight. Yeah, the, there are some really good, I mean, there's two fight sequences in, um, with these knights. The first one's when the guys first attack the citadel and they're fighting and then they the madras rolls out the uh, ordinatus cannon as well and we see all the skatari doing their thing and that's really good it's a great game of epic and then that second round that charge across the bridge is something you could see being played out in a game of 40k i mean it is the the guy going in with the two swords and doing the big samurai sweep into the monster it's just, it's individual descriptions of individual actions which tell the broader story without getting bogged down with the thousands in the fight. It's really massively written as much shade as I've thrown towards uh, Graham McNeil. He knows how to write a good story, a good fight at least. And that's what I was going to say is I think that's, that's some of the best parts of the book is the action scenes in, in this book are most of them are great. Um, that being said, Warwick, you are absolutely right. We are getting long in the tooth here. Um, let's go ahead and wrap up and get overall impressions of the book. Uh, so, Warwick, why don't you start us off here? So it's it's still one of my favorites in the series. I know I say that about almost all of them, but this one, the, the action scenes, the the overall uh, universe building of, you know, I, I really like the, um, I, and we have already talked about how it's been retcon and all that, but the the setup of the emperor um, setting up this whole thing 10,000 years ago so that he would have this priesthood to lean on when he went to conquer the galaxy is just, it is, it's so good to me. And then the icing on the cake is all this kick-ass big stompy robot fighting that we get later on in the book. So, or, or, you know, throughout the book really. So I, I just, I like hearing about the, the Titans walking, the war horns going off, these, even like some of the the, the little kind of characterizations of the knights, where like um, when Wrath Maven is kind of starting to go off script, his partner's like, "Old man Stater, and have your spurs for this." Talking about like you know uh, old knight, you know, old fashioned knights riding their horses, and if they did wrong, they'd be admonished for it in a way that like I'll you know I'll take your your banners away. Basically, it's really cool to me. So my take home of this book is really simple. This book is fantastic, but its greatest tragedy is that it's not the book it could have been. The best parts of this book are all the side stories. The fact we've had to review this book in such a weird, tangential way is because 
the best bits aren't that main character arc. And if we had a book that ignored Dahlia and ignored Zeth, we could have had a book that had rivaled the best in the series full stop. And I think the author's capable of doing it. I think a good question to ask anyone is, who's the main character here? Is it Dahlia? Because she's, in the grand scheme of things, maybe she's the most consequential. Is it uh, Indius Cavalario? Because, you know, he's a total badass and he's one of the most likable characters. Is it uh, Coriel Zeth? I mean, they could have been working on a psychic toaster for all the, the Akashic reader really matters in the grand scheme of everything. Like, it, and it, as we kind of decided earlier on, it wasn't even a vessel to get Dahlia interested in going to the Noctis Labyrinthus. As we kind of figure out, it was going to happen anyway. Yeah, and we completely missed the fact that we have some of the best Sixman seat uh, story in here as well. The Marines show up. There's such a small part that we haven't even talked about it because they show up and they go home. But there's some really good characterization there as well. It's But it's such a bit on the side. Yeah, and that's my fault. I avoid the Imperial Fist parts on purpose. Yeah, now I, I again, I there's not not much I can hate about Titan fights. I, I just can't. I want to, but I can't. I, I agree. I think that the best parts of this story are when we are not with what I would consider to be the main character, which is Dahlia. All, all of the best portions of the book are outside of that story arc, which is unfortunate because I think, Martin, you're right. We have, we have the framework here for an incredible story. Okay, let me pitch you this story. It would start with Kane talking to the uh, Salamander, who was on the thing about the fact they hadn't been getting the weapon supplies. Kane goes to the Magnus, talks about it, and then he starts realizing something's going wrong. So he goes to talk to Tempestus. Tempestus start realizing he's going with Mortis. Then we have the Caban machine doing its thing, and they talk to uh, the knights. And suddenly all three of them realize that something's about to go wrong. Then we can have the, the beats of the innocence going on. And then now we have a bit more scene with Kane trying to get stuff off planet with the Imperial Fists. We've got time for that sort of stuff. Bit of time for those guys to be in the spotlight. We have more Titan fighting. We have more night fighting. And then we have the siege of the fight at Magma City without Zeth really being there. It's just the place things are going down. And Kane getting a bit more stuff. Kane getting stuff off planet is a solid book. It'd be a heresy book. Well, and we don't even need the Magma City in that book. Just make it make it Kane's yeah. Forge that they're defending the, instead. The final retreat with the Marines getting the stuff off the planet. Yeah. Yeah, the, the more we talk about it, the more I really feel like Coriel Zeth was shoehorned in. Like, it, it could have been... It, I, I think this book does suffer from too many characters as well. So just trim some fat somewhere and give us more big stompy robots. Yeah, I'm never going to fight about big stompy robots. But let's uh, let's go ahead and wrap it up here, guys. Um, Martin, we are absolutely thrilled that you oh, could join us here. It's been a great conversation. Yeah, this has been awesome. You're welcome back on the show anytime. Uh, you want to plug your podcast again real quick? Sure thing. So it's the Fires of Betrayal podcast. We're going to be a bi-weekly podcast talking about all things Horus Heresy. Good bit of Titanicus, but we're even planning an Aeronautica episode at some point soon. So That is awesome. Well, folks... Thanks again for sticking with us this long. This has been just an absolute blast to talk about. Why don't you go ahead and shoot us an email at legioncast18 at gmail.com or look us up on Twitter, LegionCast, a Horus Heresy podcast. We love hearing from you guys. And don't forget to rate this podcast and leave us a comment. Thanks for sticking around. Yep. Thanks for stopping by, everybody. And remember to march in fortune. Mm-hmm.